You are listening to the Enhance Your Practice podcast series, brought to you by ASPS University. I'm ASPS University Chair, Dr. Nicholas Panetta, and I invite you to check out all of our educational offerings, from professional surgical videos, courses on practice management, and much, much more at ASPS EdNet. Hello, listener. Welcome to another episode of the ASPS podcast, Enhance Your Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Ash Patel. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Neil Reisman. Dr. Reisman is in private practice in Houston, Texas. He's a past president of the Aesthetic Surgery Education Research Foundation and also has a law degree. He's passed the bar exam in the state of Texas. We've been fortunate enough to benefit from his expertise as a speaker for a number of educational events, and we're here today to talk about the top 10 things to consider with an employment contract. Welcome, Dr. Reisman. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. So I think we're going to just jump straight into the conversation that we wanted to have about employment contracts. Obviously, this is a topic that's relevant for every plastic surgeon, whether in private practice or an employee, especially in private practice for younger surgeons who might be joining someone. So can you tell us what are some things that you should consider before making a decision about the organization or practice that you might want to join? There are a number of issues that should be investigated and looked at. What are your goals? Where do you want to go? What type of practice in the next two, five, or ten years? What are you interested in doing? A contract is a binding agreement between parties, and everything in the contract is binding. And one of the issues that I see a lot, people are optimistic. Yes, it will work. I will help to make this arrangement work. And they don't look at all the different details in the state you're practicing that might have a major impact on what's going on. Example, Florida has a legal issue with three settlements or judgments in a lawsuit can interfere with a license. So what if you have an employment contract that says your employer has the right to settle cases for you without your knowledge? Not as likely if you're joining someone, but if your employer is a hospital or a big association, that's not uncommon. You may have had two settlements and not even fully be aware of that. So really look at the state you're practicing in, where you want to go, what specifics does that state impart that would really impact the contract. Everything in the contract is binding. There's a four-corner doctrine and all must be in writing. It can't be most in writing and you have this verbal agreement with who you're joining. That really doesn't work. You need to get counsel. You need to get a lawyer skilled in not only healthcare law, but in contract law to make sure that all of your ideas of both sides are written understood and agreed in simple terms. And that sort of means going outside of the usual. Who owns what? How long am I hired? What am I paid? What type of practice do I have? Are there specifics in that practice that needs to be in a contract? Hand surgery, the issue of therapy, the importance of other aspects in the skills that you bring to an agreement. Well, there's nothing in there that says the group has to have any level of hand therapy and and that can negatively impact you. 
So everyone thinks of the usual, how much do I get paid? What do you expect me to do? What are the goals? What would I like to do? But there's so much more details that really needs to be a part of this. Yes, that sounds very complicated. You know, I hadn't really even thought about the aspect of the surgeon that's taking on an employee. Now, many people may not be aware that employment laws can vary dramatically from state to state. How does that impact the contracts from state to state? Significantly. If you're joining someone, there is always an issue as to whether you are an employee or an independent contractor. And there's a legal distinction between both. Some states emphasize certain characteristics that lead toward one or the other. And it's a very big distinction of liability and risks to both parties to have that initially determined. So yes, you need to look at the state first. And then a good lawyer in the state can hear what are your expectations, what is the person or entity you're joining's expectations. The more that's matched, that helps amazingly. And the lawyer should be able to fit in what the state requires or alert both parties, well, this might be an issue. Let's specifically describe it so it complies with state law. Things don't always work out when people are joining a practice or an organization. So given the complexities of employment contracts, what should a surgeon do if they realize the practice or organization that they choose isn't a good fit, or if there are things that they had in the contract that don't seem to be coming to fruition? Great question. And there are two parts to this. Just entering into an agreement and you get that aspect signed and you're starting, well, that's just the beginning of this travel. You need to maintain a level of work, good communication. There's always conflicts. How do you resolve the conflicts? The alternative should not be, well, let me run to the next entity and try and get out. It ought to be, all right, I put a lot of due diligence in this. I think we're a good mix. Our expectations sort of match. What are we missing? And some specialties don't play nicely with others. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it. Lines of communication have to be strong and ongoing. And if you're an employee, the partners might put you in a different light that might make it difficult to be able to respond. I remember my own experiences starting off in practice. I was an employee of a larger group and was told to sit with the employees, secretaries, and everybody else while all the docs sat on the other side. I have not forgotten that for a really long time. So the communication to keep it going is really the first part. If that fails, and not unusual, it does, then you go back to the contract. And if you were wise enough to look at well, gee, let me go through what happens if not. Is there a phone number I can keep? I've taken a lot of pictures. I have patients. All right, the records are owned by the entity you are employed by. But what about the patients? HIPAA says you can't take patients. You can't breach that privacy. But maybe if the agreement talks about I can pay for a copy of photos, I can pay for a copy of records if the patient wants to stay with you. The financial issues of accounts receivable, how does that get 
distributed to me? Is there a level of it that I really need to do? How do I notice that I want to leave? Most of these things have to be in writing. There needs to be an appropriate time. It raises lots of issues and conflicts within a practice when someone is dissatisfied. So the reason I separated the two, I think it's as important once you get an agreement to maintain that agreement. And it can be fluid. Hey, I'm, I haven't realized I'm not seeing this happening. I thought this would. We talked about it. There ought to be a way to have frequent meetings, ongoing meetings, uh, not in a point where the employee is subservient, but sharing to get the good of all achieved. And if some of that time is spent appropriately, then there is less of the dissatisfaction and frustration because it's expensive to change locations. You start the process all over again. How much money do you get to keep? What happens to your records? If you're in a board taking position, well, who owns the photos? Can you even get those photos? There's lots of litigation of using photos on a website that actually do not belong to you. They belong to the employer and it never was spelled out in an agreement. So complex question, make it work first rather than look for alternatives to end it. Have you been racking your brain about how to staff your practice? Worry no longer. ASPS University has just released their latest course, the Staffing Toolkit. Learn all about the staffing life cycle, from recruitment to hiring to training and management. With the course, you will receive a complimentary resource guide that includes sample job descriptions, hiring evaluation tools, checklists, and much more. Visit plasticsurgery.org forward slash staffing toolkit today for more information. Check out our other great practice management courses like late career planning and the essentials of coding on ASPS Ednet. So you mentioned some different aspects of a contract that if not in the contract, people might not realize. The example that comes to mind is ownership of patient photographs. Are there some other items in an employment contract that the surgeon should negotiate for and try to make sure they have in there? Yeah, there are laundry lists of things to do. How long is the contract for? Uh, how must it be noticed? How does it renew? Is the renewal automatic? How long are the renewals automatic? And one of the key things to me is there needs to be a description of duties and expectations. There needs to be ethical issues. I would hear stories of someone joined someone never realizing until they're actually there visualizing some questionable unethical activity. Well, now what do I do? What are the hour responsibilities? How are collections? Well, what if I speak and I have an honorarium? What if in a reconstructive hospital employee employment contract, well, what about my aesthetic patients? How about if I have self-pay patients? Is that a separate level? It seems like it's so minutiae and over, but it's really important to get that level of detail. Uh, how does the salary, is it reimbursements? Well, what if reimbursements drop? If you're an employed physician in a hospital, for example, 
depending on state law, you may be allowed to share profits that are generated from the patients that you have operated on that the hospital benefits from. In a non-employment agreement, that cannot work. It's fee splitting and it may be deemed fraudulent or an inurement or an enticement to work there, which is illegal. However, if your reimbursements are dropping, yet the hospital is profitable for those patients and it's easy to find that out, well, they're benefiting from you. But if your salary and compensation is only based on your reimbursements, that might not be a fair situation for you. How does that evolve over time? How many employees do you get? You're killing yourself running around doing things, yet there's nothing in the contract that says, gee, I need help. Can you hire me a PA? Can I have my own coordinator? How can we make that growing for both of us? How many other docs can be a part of this? So you're all excited. You finish your program and you're going to have an employment contract in a small group, for instance, and you're expecting there is a need and my practice will grow. And they turn around and hire two more people four months later. But what happens to you? They may have the right to do that because that was never brought into the contract. So there are a lot of issues and the what ifs are critical. What if I don't like it? What if they don't like me? If I have a lawsuit, if there is an ethical violation against the senior doc, does that affect me? What if someone loses board certification? What are the vacation times? How does that get determined? Well, you have to work every holiday forever while the other people in the office can arrange to get off, really. So there are a lot of different details that become very important legally and to try and get an upper hand on having the agreement and the working relationship be successful. I think it's pretty clear, I think for the listeners and certainly for myself, that this is a very, very complicated topic with a lot of different nuances. What advice do you have for the listeners if they wanted to find out more about employment contracts? One, it's state determined. So once you determine what state you want to practice in, I would ask a number of people. Lawyers advertise just like docs can. And sometimes that might not lead you to the most skilled attorney to help draft and protect you. So I would ask around, often the medical societies in the city or state have good access to resources and can often suggest an appropriate attorney to look at things. Make a list of expectations. I have a slide that I use in in my talks of a new doctor who is looking at a dartboard and he's asked by the senior doc, so tell me what you expect out of a practice. And the younger doc says, well, I'd like to work three days. I'd like to make your income in three months. I need all the other people. Oh, and by the way, I can't work Thursday night. I'm interested in another hobby, uh, landscaping. And we have classes Thursday night. Oh, and by the way, every other weekend we're planting. So it's like, oh, my God. So expectations are key. Once you get an attorney, 
you ought to have a list of what your goals are. And they really ought to be as realistic as possible, yet not boxed in. Practices flow. You become interested in a certain aspect of plastic surgery, and it might take you down a different path. You don't want to be in an employment agreement only doing craniofacial, which is wonderful, but you now want to get into another area, and your agreement prevents that. So steps in order, line up ducks, do expectations, uh, what type of person would be wise to join, both from an age standpoint, a training standpoint, complementary standpoint, and then it's all about the agreement. And you need a lawyer as much as some people don't like attorneys. Uh, yours is very important in trying to get you through a protective employment agreement for both. And the same for the person you are joining or being hired by, they have to go through the same ordeal. The more those agreements reflect fairness and meeting expectations and a need, the more chances of this being successful. I hear a lot of stories of hospitals hiring plastic surgeons because there is a more senior surgeon who left the facility and they're trying to get even, so to speak, and there's not a need for an additional microsurgeon if it is microsurgery there. And a lot of it has to do with breast and microsurgery. And then you're setting up a young doc uh, in this employment agreement. They're throwing a lot of money to set up things. If parameters are not met, that doc may be responsible for all the money that the hospital puts out for him. So the other aspect that would be good, do your homework. Go talk to people in the community and see what the reputation is of who you want to join. Don't just listen to them. Get an idea of what is the hospital like. What competition is there? Is there truly a need? Dr. Reisman, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. I think it's been very informative and hopefully the listeners could take these points and definitely consider what they need to think about with their next employment contract. Thank you. The society has so many good resources to help you along the way. Take advantage of that. Do your homework, get questions answered, and this could be very successful. Thank you. Please join us for the next episode of Enhancer Practice, where we will be joined by Dr. Kavita Ranganathan, who will be discussing how to find a mentor. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our Enhance Your Practice podcast series, brought to you by ASPS University and our host, Dr. Ash Patel. You can listen to our other episodes on any of the podcast platforms where they are currently available, or you can download recordings directly from ASPS Ednet. New seasons and episodes are coming soon on practice management. Please contact ASPS Education with your feedback and suggestions for future podcast topics. Thank you for tuning in.